Great. Well, it's a, it's a real privilege to introduce Adrian to you this morning. You've already uh, seen him. But uh, just so Adrian is a really great friend of King's. He's visited, I think this is his fifth time with us over a number of years. And it's been great to grow in friendship with him. He's, uh, he, he, he does this. This is his uh, thing that he does for a job. He goes around churches really encouraging them, helping them, training, equipping them, and praying for people and sharing the love of Jesus with people. So, so it's great to have him here this weekend. He comes from Wimbledon. So um, it was a long walk, wasn't it, Adrian? To, to get here. No, I think you flew. So anyway, let's put our hands together. Let's give him a big welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. <clears throat> thank you very much. Great. Well, hey, thank you very much for that very kind welcome. I thought I'd just introduce our subject for this morning just by telling you a funny story. Is that okay if I just tell you a funny story? Um, In 2003, I sat down with our eldest daughter, who's called Esther. She's actually in the middle of this uh, picture. She was only four years old at the time. And uh, told her the big news. The big news was that we were going to move as a family from Birmingham, which is where we were living in 2003, we were going to move to London, where we now live. And Esther, who was four at the time, asked me an excellent question. She said, Daddy, when we move to London, we'll have new neighbours, won't we? I said, yes, Esther, we will. She said, Daddy, they won't like you. I said, you know, incredulous. I said, why? Why won't they like me? She said, well, she said, you've got no hair. (laughs) Anyway, Esther is now, Esther's now grown up and she's she's at university at the moment. And Esther's got this friend called Angela. And Angela, this is, sorry, this is another funny story. Um, Angela, uh, she's, she lives in this kind of rural uh, village uh, in Surrey. This is a place where there's only one bus a day, yeah? So she's standing, Angela's standing at the bus stop on a, on a cold, snowy day, waiting for the daily bus. Um, but the bus doesn't come. There's, there's a couple of other uh, women who are waiting at the bus stop as well. Um, but there is ice on the road. And so Angela's thinking, well, you know, maybe the bus has been cancelled and I've been waiting a long time. And I'm getting pretty. She's just about to give up and go home. When at that moment, a car pulls up at the bus stop. There is a woman driving this car. And she winds down her window and she calls out... Do you want a lift? Angela thinks, oh, yeah, <laughs> I really do want a lift. I mean, it's jolly cold. I want a lift. So Angela gets into the car. In fact, these other two women at the bus stop, they get in as well. Yeah. So picture the scene. Now, this woman is driving a car away from the bus stop. She's got three women on the back seat. There's Angela in the middle. There's a lady that Angela doesn't know on her right-hand side. There's another lady that Angela doesn't know on her left-hand side. But Angela says, funny thing was, there's no conversation. For five minutes, for five minutes, they're driving along and and nobody says anything. And then five minutes later, they've now been driving along for 10 minutes and still no one has said anything. And then the lady on Angela's right-hand side, she starts talking to the driver. It's obvious these two women already know each other. And then the lady on Angela's left-hand side, she joins in. It's obvious that she also knows the driver and she knows the lady on Angela's right And that's when the horrible, dawning realization comes to Angela that what must have happened here is that this lady was driving her car along the road and as she passed the bus stop, she saw two of her friends. And so she stops at the bus stop, she winds down the window, she calls out to her two friends, do you want a lift? 
And as her two friends get into her car, this random other person gets into the car as well. But you see, because they lived in Surrey, no one said anything. It's like, oh, uh, it's very awkward. We haven't been introduced. There's a random person in the car, but we can't say anything because we haven't been introduced. So they, they just drove along in total silence. And I just want to say, I mean, first of all, I want to say that's not normal. You know, like in every other part of the world, somebody would have said, oh, actually, we all know each other, but hey, do you want to lift as well? We'll drop you wherever you want to. But no, because they hadn't been introduced, they drove along in silence. But just imagine one other time. It's a snowy day. Angela's at the bus stop. This time, her dad drives by. He sees his daughter, Angela. He stops. He gets out. He gives her a massive hug. They get into his car together, and they drive off together, laughing and joking, because they love each other. The Bible's claim is that God is a father who brought you and me into the world of having a love, in the hope of having a love relationship with you. This is a relationship that is good for this life and it's good for the next. And if you're not sure whether you've got that relationship with God, then I'd love to give you an easy opportunity to begin that relationship afresh this morning. So if you don't know for sure that if perish the thought, you were to die tonight. You don't know for sure that you go to heaven. You'd say, well, I hope so. Hey, you don't have to hope so any longer. Because even though none of us are good enough, Jesus Christ is good enough. So you can just put your hand into his hand. See, he does all the work. And if he does all the work, then you can be sure before you leave this building. So maybe at the end, uh, there'll be a chance for us to pray together. At the end, I'll invite the band to come back. We'll sing a song. And then I'll invite you on this little comment card. There's a tick box that says, I want to make the prayer my prayer. I'll pray a prayer that just says yes to God, a, a response prayer. If you want to make that prayer your prayer, then you can just tick that box to say, well, yeah, actually, I want to say yes. I want to make that prayer my prayer. Everybody will be writing a comment, so you won't be the only one writing. We'll all be joining in. And you can respond in that way if you'd like to. Okay, folks, well, for the next few minutes, we're going to look at what happened when Jesus met someone who had spent years chasing happiness. It seems that this woman had almost kind of given up hope of ever finding happiness. She had, it seems, been looking for approval and significance. Now, in this incident, by speaking to a Samaritan, Jesus ignores a wall of hatred that had divided Jews from Samaritans for 400 years. By speaking to a woman, as a Jewish man, Jesus is cutting right through Middle Eastern social protocol. So she's surprised. Jesus has crossed a racial divide. Jesus has crossed a religious divide. Jesus has just crossed a gender divide to show her radical acceptance. And Jesus was always getting into trouble for doing this sort of thing. You see, he doesn't mind what class you think you are. He doesn't mind what race you are. Jesus was always going to the parties of the wrong people. And as we'll see later, this woman was also considered in her culture to be like a kind of moral outsider. 
So she was being shunned by her own community, which is probably why she was going to draw water at a time in the day when there wouldn't be anyone else around to criticize her. And it is typical of Jesus, isn't it, that here he deliberately goes out of his way to show love to somebody who may have thought that they weren't good enough for God. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Dragon's Den. Have you ever seen Dragon's Den? Okay, most of you. Well, let's imagine there's somebody here and you come from a country somewhere in the world that has not yet got Dragon's Den. Let me just explain the, the format. So the format of Dragon's Den is that there are five mega wealthy investors. And they're so wealthy that as they lounge in their chairs, they have little tables and on the tables they put wads of their cash so that we can see how wealthy they are, how ridiculously wealthy. I'm leaving a huge outsized amount of my cash there. So that's the idea. And so the format of the show is that a sometimes hesitant, nervous, or maybe even timid entrepreneur will come into the den and then they'll pitch their business, business idea. And then sadly... What sometimes happens is that one by one, the dragons, the investors, they will find fault with the person or with their idea. And then, I'm afraid what often happens is that they'll sum up their withering analysis of why they're not going to invest in that person. And they'll finish up by saying, and for that reason, I'm out. And then the next dragon will say, well, yeah, you're a nice enough guy but I just don't think you've got what it takes for this kind of industry. So for that reason, I'm out. And so on all the way down the line, all five of them say the same thing. And you know, it's almost as if when Jesus comes along here and he meets this woman, it's almost like Jesus says, do you know what? For the very reason that everybody else has said that you're out, for that reason, I'm in. For the very reason that everybody else in this town seems to have rejected you, for that reason, I accept you. This morning, Jesus is in. He says to you what he says to this woman. I'm interested in you. I'm going to stop and talk to you. This morning, Jesus is in. Now, this woman, she didn't go to the well in order to meet Jesus. No, she had no idea that Jesus was going to. She didn't know who he was. She didn't know he was going to be there. So she, as far as we know, she wasn't on some kind of religious search. In the same way, folks, I wasn't looking to meet Jesus. I mean, I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. But then what happened to me was I met quite a large group of Christians, and they had a sense of, uh, I don't know what you call it, peace maybe? They had a sense of peace and joy that wasn't dependent on their circumstances. Now, Why was that appealing to me? Was it perhaps because I was unhappy at the time? No, looking back, I was very happy at the time. Like me, this woman wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus came into her life unexpectedly and unannounced. And Jesus just values her as a woman. He simply loves her as a woman who has been made in the image of God. And so we ask Does Jesus value me? The answer is a massive yes. Yes. It is not a case of mistaken identity. He's for you. He loves you. Maybe on this subject I can tell you about a a funny thing that happened. When uh, Emma, uh, I don't know if you saw the photo earlier, those four girls on the bench with my wife, uh, the youngest one, she's called Emma. Now when Emma was born, a funny thing happened. 
uh, all four of our children, they've all been born by caesarean section. Yeah? And what this means for me as the dad is that I am asked to also go into the, the operating theatre and I have to dress up in all the garb, yeah? So I have to put on what on me looks rather ridiculous, a sort of shower cap type um, thing, you know, even though I haven't got any hair for some reason, I have to wear that. And I have to wear these blue overalls and also I have to wear these rather extraordinarily white Wellington boots. I don't actually know why I have to wear that, but this is the outfit, okay? So when Emma was born, I go into the operating theatre dressed up like this. I walk in, but when I walk in, Julia, my wife, she's not been brought in yet. In fact, there's only one person in the operating theatre. When I go in, there's a nurse, she's standing on the far side. So it's just me and her. So I say, hi, uh, my name's Adrian. She says, oh, hi, I'm Sarah. I said, we're just kind of passing the time of day. I say, so um, uh, have you worked here long? You know? Uh, she said, uh, no, no, I've only been here two weeks. I've been over at the other hospital. We're having this conversation at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. She said, I've been over at the other hospital. I said, oh, do you live over this side of London? Oh, no, 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 I live right over the other side of London. All right, I say, so um, uh, have you been in the operating theatre for many of these caesarean section operations? She said, oh, yeah, I mean, over the years, I mean, loads, looking back, must be loads. She said, how about you? I said, oh, well, this is my fourth. And she looked at me and she said, only your fourth? I said, yeah. I mean, I thought, well, what a strange question. I thought, well, no, if I went out now into the street and I just stopped men in, in the street and I just said, excuse me, sir, can I just ask you, how many caesarean section operations have you attended? Most blokes would say none. Yeah? And then occasionally I might find a one or maybe even somewhere in like two or three streets away a two. I think four's a lot. Yeah? So... She said, only your fourth? And I said, yeah. I said, all three of our previous children have also been born by caesarean section. And when I say that, she bursts out laughing. She goes, ah! Oh. <laughs> she just starts clapping in the operating theatre. She said, she said, you're the dad. I said, yeah. She said, oh, I thought you were the surgeon. And of course, from her point of view, I can imagine how I would have walked in with an air of competence. I probably looked like someone who could easily perform a complicated medical operation. But no, the truth was it was just a simple case of mistaken identity. And folks, the most amazing thing about you and the most amazing thing about me is that this is not a case of mistaken identity. Identity. God knows all the best that there is to know about me. God knows all the worst that there is to know about me. God knows all the best that there is to know about you. God knows all the worst that there is to know about you. And he's in. And as we're going to see, actually Jesus already knows all that there is to know about this Samaritan woman. This isn't a case of mistaken identity. Jesus wants you, he's for you, he's not against you, and he's drawing you to himself, a bit like this woman is being drawn to Christ. Now what does Jesus mean when he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again? He means that until we come to him, until we come to Jesus, we'll never be completely satisfied. We'll always have this faint sense of striving, longing, chasing, 
kind of looking forward to the next thing. But folks, what's brilliant about this woman is that by the end of our story, she realizes that the reason why she's still thirsty and not yet satisfied is because she's separated from God. You see, Jesus is offering us something this morning that is so much better than well water. It turns out that you and I have been too easily pleased. It turns out that God is more committed to our happiness than we are. So Jesus says here, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, hey, if you knew that they're going to be like replaying this conversation in this place called Edinburgh in 2,000 years from now, if you knew that this chat we're having right now, it's going to be written up in this book, it's going to be called the Bible, written by, this is going to be chapter four of like the Gospel of John. I know you don't understand all that but yet, but this is going to be like a famous conversation. If you knew that right now you're talking to the Son of God, you'd say at this point, oh wow, uh, Jesus, uh, can I have your eternal life please? And I'd say, well yes, that's why I came to the planet. But at this stage, she hasn't yet understood what he's on about. The woman said to him, Sir, um, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man who you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. What? So Jesus suddenly changes the subject and gets personal. He says, go, call your husband and come back. Why do that? Why change the subject? Folks, he didn't. Jesus didn't change the subject. He's staying on exactly the same subject. She's been saying, no, I mean, I'm not spiritually thirsty. That's not my deal. And Jesus is kind of saying, The fact that you've had five husbands, does that tell you something about you? Jesus is saying, you don't think that you're spiritually thirsty, but actually you deeply thirst for acceptance. You thirst for significance. You thirst for God. It's just that you don't recognize your thirst for what it really is. You've been drinking at the fountain of male approval, and now you're fed up with it, aren't you? Because each time you got married, you thought, this next bloke... This bloke, he's going to make me happy. But each time, you've been disappointed. Jesus is saying to her, after five disappointments, you've lost your spark. Can I ask you this morning, somewhere along the road of life, did you lose your spark? Jesus is hinting to this woman, the light that once burned bright in you has now become dimmed. By bitter experience. Jesus is hinting, these husbands, they've kind of been like pseudo-saviors for you. But they didn't deliver, they didn't last, they didn't even stay. The latest guy, the bloke you're with at the moment, what do we know about him? He makes you come out and haul water for him in the heat of the day. He's a false master too. And in just the same way, somebody might be sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, I mean, I wish I could have faith. But you don't have to create faith. You have already got more than enough faith. All we need to do is transfer our hopes from where they currently are to Christ. You've already got more than enough 
Faith. All we need to do is to transfer our hopes from where they're currently set to Christ. Because there is some place where you and I are going and we're drinking deep for that spiritual deep love. We are all human. Now, okay, in her case, yes, it happens to be these five men. In our case, it could, well, actually, I don't know what it is in our case. For, for all I know, it could be our home. It could be our appearance. It could be our friends. It could be a job or a career or our status. For us, our life could be tied up with being accepted by that particular group of people. But the good news is that Jesus comes to you this morning and says, I've got living water. Drink from me. If you come to me, you will never thirst again. Wow. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is such a massive moment. I mean, the way that Jesus very gently helps this woman is so impressive. First of all, he shows us where we've currently got our hopes. First of all, he shows us who our pseudo-saviors and false masters currently are. And then he can gradually bring it round so that he can say, I'm the Jewish Messiah. Here's the living water. I'm the one. I'm the one who is going to fulfill all 322 Old Testament prophecies, all of which were written about me 400 years before I was even born. I'm him. I'm the one. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You see, now she's free. Now you can't keep it down. Now she's bouncing around the town. She's found a new source and new joy. She's experienced radical acceptance. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So what makes Jesus the savior of the world? Well, uh, he's the savior of the world because he saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our pseudo-saviors. He saves us from our false masters. He saves us from our tendency to make idols out of people and things. He saves us from the places where we've currently set our hopes. He saves us from the times that we've put other things first ahead of God. And of course he becomes the savior of the world as he dies on the cross. Now why is that always considered to be such a big deal? Well, maybe I can get into this by just telling you a funny story. Um, The first day uh, I ever did church paid work, I was in a different career before this, and my first ever day doing this sort of thing that I'm doing now, I'm sent by this church to take a double period of A-level general studies, and even now, I don't know what that is. I still don't know what it is. Anyway, so I arrive at this uh, public school, uh, 
private school, and there's 17 very bright 17-year-old boys. They're sitting in a horseshoe shape, and as I walk in, no exaggeration, they are discussing this subject as I walk in. So I ask them a question. I say, in your opinion, are there any crimes, any sins that are so bad that those people who commit that crime or that sin should never get to go to heaven when they die. They said, oh yeah, they said, oh yeah. I said, like what? They said, like murder. Murderers should never get to go to heaven when they die. I said, oh, okay. Um, I said, are there any other sins down the other end of the spectrum? These are sins that are going to turn out to be no big deal. Sins that God will kind of sweep under the carpet. Oh yeah, they said, oh yeah. I said, like what? They said, well, like, like a mild, mild shoplifting. I said, what, sort of, as opposed to like hardcore habitual shoplifting? They said, yeah, yeah, mild shoplifting. God's not going to be too fussed about mild shoplifting. I said, all oh, right. I said, are there any other sins that God's not too fussed about? Oh, yeah. They said, oh, yeah. I said, like, what? It's more like lying. God's not too fussed about lying. I said, guys, we are really making some progress. In the first five minutes of our A-level general studies, you have established that Over here at this end of the spectrum, murderers will never get to go to heaven when they die. But over here at the other end of the spectrum, you've established that mild shoplifting and lying are okay. I said, guys, somewhere between these two extremes, there must be a cut-off point sin, whereby you can mild shoplift all you want down this end of the spectrum, but the moment you commit this cut-off point sin, you don't get to go to heaven when you die. I said, guys, what is, what is that cut-off point sin? And one boy rose to his feet. And I said, what is that cut-off point sin? And he said, serious fraud. <laughs> I'll never forget the way he said it. Serious fraud. And of course, at the moment he said it, Everybody in the classroom, we burst out laughing. Because in that moment, we realized how ridiculous we were being as we, in our wisdom, as we decided what God's cutoff point should be. We realized the reason we were laughing in the classroom is because we all realized we would probably need God to tell us what God's cutoff point is. And actually, in the Bible, uh, God has told us what his cutoff point is. The Bible's claim is that actually all of us have sinned. Uh, That we all fall short of the glory of God. That, That actually we're all cut off and speaking personally there are loads of times when in my life either in terms of my thoughts or my words or my deeds I mean the the God who's real the God who really exists that God knows all about me I mean the God who really exists knows all about the times when I knew what the right thing to do was but I didn't do it the God who really exists he knows all the times when I've taken the gifts of food fun friends, falling in love, and so on. And I've just taken these gifts for granted and kind of eased the gift giver towards the margins of my life. I mean, all the times when I've just taken the gift of life for granted. The Bible says the result of sin is death. Folks, I'm not perfect enough for a perfect heaven. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, says about heaven that nothing impure will ever enter it. So I'm, I'm not going to heaven when I die. I mean, if I did go into a perfect heaven, 
I'd pollute it and it wouldn't be heaven anymore. So if I can't have eternal life, I'm facing eternal death. And the Bible says the result of the punishment for sin is death. It's very hard though to imagine facing the death penalty. Just imagine for a moment that I was in somewhere where they have the death penalty today. Like in some states in America, they have the death penalty. Let's imagine I commit a crime in Florida for which I'm liable to get the penalty of death by lethal injection. Now, I would like to think that I would not commit a crime for which I would get this penalty. But let's just imagine, just for the sake of the illustration, yeah, let's imagine that I did. So what would happen to me? Well, I get arrested and, of course, then I'm... Got, I don't know, maybe a year in prison, waiting for my trial to come round. Eventually my trial does come round. And of course I'm there in the orange jumpsuit. And I've got my wrist handcuffed, I've got my ankle shackled, I'm led into court. And let's imagine that, unfortunately for me, the evidence against me is overwhelming. And at the end of the trial, all that remains is for the judge to hand down the sentence of death by lethal injection. So I'm kind of trembling, thinking this is it. But just imagine, just before he says those words, let's imagine somebody bursts in through the doors at the back of the courtroom, and rather than stopping the trial, let's imagine the judge allows this disturbance to continue. And so this stranger, who I don't recognize, comes all the way up, and the judge doesn't stop the trial. He allows the disturbance. He comes all the way up to the dock where I'm standing. Yeah? And now let's imagine that this stranger pushes me out of the way. So now I'm standing on the courtroom floor over here. They're standing in my place in the dock. Now here's the question. How would you feel if you were standing, looking on, how would you feel as the judge proceeds to pass the sentence of death upon this stranger rather than on you? Well, there are gasps in the courtroom. I mean, all your relatives in the gallery are like, what? All the press and the TV and the radio are like, what on earth's going on? Well, it's amazing. The clerk of court bangs his gavel on the desk, all rise. Everybody stands up. The judge walks out. The guards come up to you and they take off the handcuffs. They take off the shackles. They take off you the orange jumpsuit. They put the orange jumpsuit on the stranger. They handcuff his wrists. They shackle his ankles and he is led off to the wagon to death row. And of course, as he passes you, you grab his arm and you say, I'm sorry, I've got to stop you. I've got to ask you why. I mean, why on earth would you choose to swap with me? I mean, why, what's in it for you? Why on earth would you choose to give up your life to death by lethal injection, just so that I can go free. Why are you doing this for me? What's in it for you? And imagine if he says, well, uh, you see, it's like this. I really do love you. And you think, what? What sort of cheese is that? Is that Hollywood? Who says that? I really, I mean, maybe, maybe this is some sort of TV game show. Reality. Like everybody else is in on the gag except me. I mean, this is it's too good to be true, Yeah. So you wander forward into the foyer of the courtroom and there in the foyer, of course, there's all the TV and all the radio and all the press 
and they all want a piece of you. And of course, they're all buzzing with this amazing news. But one of the reporters says, hey, I recognize that stranger. It's not a stranger to me. The bloke who just swapped with you? The bloke who they're just leading out right now to the wagon? The bloke who's going off to death row in your place? I went to school with him. Hey, I can tell you something about him you don't know. That's the judge's son. In fact, that's the judge's one and only son. Well, now you're in awe of the judge. A few moments later, the judge leaves his chambers. He's going back to his car. He's going to drive home. He's finished his day at work. And of course, as the judge passes you, you grab his arm and you say, Your Honor, Your Honor, I've got to stop you. I've got to ask you why. Your Honor, why on earth would you choose to allow your one and only son to go to death by lethal injection just so that I can be free? Your Honor, what's in it for you? Your Honor, why are you doing this for me? And imagine if he replies, well, um, you see, it's like this. I really do love you. Still, you can't get your head around it. It still seems too good to be true. You go out of the courtroom, and now you're just wandering aimlessly through the streets, because you'd never thought you'd be free. You hadn't planned anything for this part of your life. You never thought this would ever happen. You're just wandering along the street. After an hour of wandering aimlessly, a car pulls up in front of you. There are tinted windows. They were down, and out of this car steps the judge, and your heart sinks. I knew it was too good to be true. He's come to arrest me. It was all some big show. It was all some big game. But rather than arresting you, this judge just gives you a massive hug. And as he's holding you, that's when the penny drops. You really are free. Folks, something like that was happening for you in 33 AD on a hill just outside Jerusalem where on that day, God, a judge looked down upon his one and only son, Jesus, and allowed his son to die, not by lethal injection, but by crucifixion. And in that moment, as Jesus died on the cross, somehow, God treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe, of everyone who even this morning would respond to him. In that moment, Jesus took the rap instead of you, instead of me. In that moment, you and I can go free. And these Samaritans have worked out that Jesus really was the Savior. They say he's the Savior of the world. If he's not already your Savior, he can be before you leave this building. This is exciting. Look, as we finish, how the woman in our story responds. She says, guys... Come and meet him, isn't he great? She goes to the very same people who before she was avoiding. She doesn't mind what they think anymore because she's got a totally new self-image. Now she's finally fully satisfied. She's got the living water. She'll never thirst again. She's found this person called Jesus who satisfies her need for approval and significance or whatever it was. She's got this eternal life because she said yes to Christ when she had the chance. And now, right now, you've got that same chance that she had. You can say yes to Christ. You can have eternal life. You can come to him. And if you do come to him, 
In a few minutes' time, God the Father will give you a massive hug. He'll hold you tight. He'll say, I am your Father. I'm really proud of you. And you can be embraced back in the arms of your loving, heavenly Father. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. You know, folks, it's a fact of history that three days after the crucifixion, three days after Jesus' dead body was buried, his tomb was empty. And the reason why I, many years ago, became a Christian and started to follow Christ was because I became convinced by the historical evidence that Jesus not only rose from the dead but subsequently appeared to people afterwards. And because Christ has physically broken through that barrier of death, what that means is that if you trust in him, you will too. He's punched a hole through the barrier of death and if you're in Christ, you'll follow him through and you'll be with him forever. You can have eternal life. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song and at the end of the song I'm going to come back, I'll stand here, I'm going to pray a pretty short prayer. This is a prayer that says yes to God, the words will be on the screen and then if you want to make that prayer, your prayer, everyone will be writing a comment on this card and while everybody's writing you know, what they like, what they didn't like, what they thought, you can just tick the box that says yeah I, I want to make the prayer my prayer. You can do that if you'd like to. Should we stand together? Then he's going to lead us, let's sing together. Wonderful. As the band just carry on playing quietly, why don't you quietly take a seat and let's look at this prayer. Let me show you a prayer. It says, Dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, I want to say yes to you. I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done. I've sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place as my substitute instead of me. So I'm totally forgiven. I'm turning to you. You are my Savior and Lord. And in a moment, I'd like to give you an opportunity to make that your prayer if you'd like to. Maybe you don't know for sure that you have eternal life. Maybe you need the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. Maybe you want this relationship with God. So as I pray this prayer, you can make this silently your prayer. I'm not asking anyone to pray out loud. But as I pray this prayer, as you hear the words being said, you can mean them in your heart. Let's pray together, shall we? And maybe, just with this music playing in the background, in your heart, you're praying something like this. You're praying, dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, I want to say yes to you. I am sorry for the wrong things that I've done. I have sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. But thank you so much for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place as my substitute instead of me so that I'm totally forgiven. I'm turning to you. You are my Savior and Lord. Now, if there's never been a time or a period in your life when you've given the whole of your life to Christ, maybe you can't say, oh yeah, by the time I left school, or by the time I moved to Edinburgh, or by the time I started my first job, it's a bit of a gray area. You're not quite sure where you stand. You can make sure. 
this morning before you leave this place. Or secondly, maybe this is true of you. You don't know for sure that if perish the thought you were to die tonight, you don't know for sure that you go to heaven. You'd say, well, I mean, I hope so. But you can know so. Even though none of us are good enough, Jesus Christ is good enough. He does all the work. So if he does all the work, you can be sure. Or thirdly, maybe this is true of you. You believe in God, but you couldn't say you really know him personally. Folks, if any one of those three is true of you, the chances are you've never fully given your life to Christ. You can do that right now. You can make this prayer your prayer. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for helping us out. I think it'd be great, wouldn't it, if we just thank God. First of all, thank God for those people who've received healing this morning. Thank God also for people who in the last two minutes have put their trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time. But I think we should thank God most of all for sending Jesus.